Hi guys, welcome back to my Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. I have got the honor and privilege of meeting Katie Lale today. And I was looking forward to this interview for quite some time because she is a fellow traveler who actually went through her own personal hell and is now like me out there to make this world a bit of a better place one interview at a time and i was so looking forward to her that we started talking and had the most fantastic discussion already we were half through the interview and i realized yeah, had actually not started the, the, the record button <laughs> so here we are both already very relaxed because we have been here before it's a bit of a deja vu um, but it just shows here we are full of passion for life having a good time when yet we have been in our hell with demons uh, doing interesting things within our heads. So mm -hmm. if this is not proof that the past does not equal the future, then I don't want to know. So Katie, welcome to my show. Thanks again for having me. I am so <laughs> grateful to be here. Half of us and all. <laughs> oh, no, it's just it's just crazy. And it's crazy because we immediately had this bond and we immediately wanted to chat. And it was so beautiful. And, and it is beautiful because we both have been in the darkness. And nowadays we therefore appreciate the light for such such more than other people who have not had this intense up and down or maybe people have many people had their down but they have not yet experienced that up of transformation and recovery so that's yes. that's a beautiful and, and and today we are both here to actually share our stories and 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 allow others maybe just maybe to get that glimmer of hope to say hey now okay if these two numb nuts have, have have got it sorted then maybe there's still a chance for me as well <laughs> <laughs> yes. so katie hey no, I just, I always think like if there was people that could have seen me like in my worst and mm. then seen me now, there is definitely hope. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Do you actually have pictures of, of your worst? Oh, yeah, for oh, yeah? sure. Uh... For sure. And the funny thing is, is I thought I looked really good then, but, <laughs> you know, looking ah. back, it's like. Oh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh, it's interesting, interesting. I've only got one picture where really um, there's proof of me being absolutely blotto. Um, otherwise, um, I was blessed to do all my uh, very strange things and, and naughty things at time when cell phones didn't have uh, any camera ability, or where at least I was surrounded by people who had the dignity to not film. Uh, and rather, <laughs> rather party themselves. <laughs> so different, yeah. different. I have, I was blessed with that. But Katie, I mean, uh, I started. I I really started getting into into my alcohol around about uh, 18, 19, 20. Mm -hmm. You were a much earlier starter, weren't you? You were, I yes. mean, a, a fast going for it. Tell us a bit <laughs> how your story started. Yeah. So for me, like getting into meth addiction, so mine was a meth addiction. It, it was just a really natural transition for me. I grew up and both of my parents struggled with meth use. Um, and so it was kind of just around me. It was just kind of a part of my life. Um, you know, I started experimenting with like drinking and marijuana, things like that when I was, you know, 12, 13. Um, but I was, 
the oldest of my siblings by quite a bit. So I, I am eight years older than my twin sisters and six years older than my younger brother. And so I, I fell into this like caretaking role. Um, and so, you know, that's really difficult. Like when you're in middle school and early high school and you don't have any resources, you have to kind of like try to just keep everything together and be responsible for these young people. Um, so in my mind, I, I developed this solution. And if I could just, you know, party with my mom, maybe she wouldn't leave so much. And so, you know, it kind of started, we started drinking together a little bit and we were, you know, drinking with her and her boyfriend and my boyfriend. And um, it was just kind of like this little thing. And she went to get high and I asked if I could get high also. And, you know, there was like a small bit of hesitation, but she ended up letting me. And, and then from there, I just really hit the ground running after that, I, there was no looking back for me. What did the meth do to you? What what was the first feeling? Can you remember it the first time you used meth? Yes, I will ne definitely never forget the first time that I used. And it's funny because I had really like built it up in my head. Like I, there is a part of me that knew that I was like on this road to doing meth and like just the way that I seen everybody act. Like I just thought it was going to make everything perfect. And it definitely didn't. It, it had its downsides, but The thing that I remember the most is after I got high, like I just didn't care anymore. Like I didn't care about the consequences of like whatever was going to happen. I didn't care about any of the responsibilities. I didn't care about, you know, everything that had gone wrong for the past two years. I was just there. I was just there and I was just having fun and everything was just okay. I didn't have any emotions. Interesting. So neither high nor low but just no emotions like no no emotions i mean i would say like definitely like you're at a more engaged state like you're yeah. it's an upper so you definitely yeah. like feel that but like emotion wise like i wasn't sad i wasn't happy like i was just doing what i was doing interesting interesting how long did that hit last for you so I mean, hours-wise, you know, how 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 uh, actually, what's the duration of this this awareness state? So it's hard to tell because I I didn't stop there. Um, <laughs> right. We, <laughs> <laughs> okay. we, <laughs> we drove about three hours to a casino, and my mom stuck me into the casino, and I gambled. But like, I think every 20 minutes, we were all sneaking to the bathroom and getting high. So it was it was like a continuous thing. And so for me, it was about two days. <laughs> And then, you know, you're driving home and you're like, oh, my gosh, school and all these obligations and all these things and everything kind of like comes crashing down on yeah. you. Um, and so I I but I would say, you know, like if you like meth isn't one of those things that you do and it's like gone a couple hours later, like it like that intense high is maybe an hour or two. But then right. I feel like it trickles on for days. Interesting. Oh, OK. And I mean, I love to be to have an absolute clarity in my mind. Nowadays, I I value that, but I get it. I get a true clarity from the way I live nowadays. But I can mm -hmm. see how that if you're if you're constantly in a grind and suddenly you get this drug that makes you 
feel, see things clear without the, the negative emotions, without the shame, mm-hmm. the guilt, the sadness, the trauma, whatever trauma there is, you don't give a damn anymore. Ah, oh, what a relief that is. Just do mm-hmm. not feel the pain. I can see that. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting. I put meth. I've never had it, I, luckily. Um, and I put it sort of in the same group as ecstasy. Ecstasy is sort of as the the make the world uh, your, everyone is your best friend. And I thought you would get that emotional high there as well. But it's interesting to, to, to hear your description, which is clearly different from my prejudice, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, was, was meth the only thing? And why meth? Why not? How much? How much was meth on the street at that time? What about cocaine? What about other drugs? Um, was meth cheap? <laughs> Definitely not cheap. <laughs> but um, you know, like thinking back, the funny thing is, is I I couldn't even tell you like what I was paying for the drug at the time. It didn't even seem like a relevant factor. Um, <laughs> okay. But for me, like I think that the biggest factor was that that's what was being used by by my social group by the people around me so it was like you know that was also another piece of it it was like the first time in my life that I like felt connected Uh, like and I you know and so for a lot of it was just that connection and the people the accessibility of it sure and that makes sense within your family and within your your friend group, so to speak. And I use the word friend as the loosest term here as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there was this other uh, Katie who went to school. How were you in school? How did things work out there? Because often enough, uh, children from dysfunctional families they actually love school and spend every second in school and every after school activity because it takes them out of the chaos of their home. You know, when I started using at such a young age, things really fell apart for me at school. Prior to that, like, I really loved school. It was like a place where you go and you, like, somebody's telling you that you're doing a good job. And that was worth it for me, you know, like, mm-hmm. just throwing yourself into that. Um, but at this time, like, it quickly turned into like a truancy situation and not going to school because it really wasn't going to school wasn't conducive with me on my continual journey to stay high at this time, you know? <laughs> so did no one use that school? So school was was uh, a, more or less a good school, quotation mark? Yeah, definitely. Like, and even at the age that I started using, like most of the people that I were using with were, you know, I was like 15, 16, like and during this age period. Yeah. Um, most of the people that I was using with were, you know, in their 20s or friends of my mom's right. or, right. you know, and so... um it wasn't until probably closer to graduation time that there was more people my age who were mm. using substances. So, okay, um, wow, uh, so many questions because for me, alcohol was was equally a liberating thing. It made me come out of my shell. I was Mm. probably very shy. And so alcohol allowed me to be that other persona. Alcohol had also an an impact on me on my sexuality, because with being more relaxed, therefore, I had uh, certainly a better performance, so to speak, uh, in in bed, Mm. Um, and to a degree that I could actually control an erection. At, At the right level of alcohol, I could switch it on and off as to my will and that was a powerful beautiful thing does meth do anything to sexuality does it turn it off does it turn (laughs) it on does it do anything 
Yeah, no, it definitely does. Um, and like, it's like, it almost becomes like a big tangled web because mm. like meth definitely like heightens that sexual drive. Um, and the experience is so much more intense. Uh. And like, especially when you're shooting up, like there's something about like, just like the whole like shooting up experience is almost like like a sexual experience right. in itself. And so like, it's really hard to honestly like disentangle the two. Um, and, it, but like, it's to the point where it's almost like it kind of like taints sex in a way, you know, like it takes away like the, like the beauty and the passion of it mm. and almost becomes like this dirty, like um, impulsive thing that happens instead. Mm. That's interesting how you, however, already put an emotion onto it. Whilst initially it was that kind of wow, uh, very quickly though it it changes, isn't it? And into it, it there are more layers to that. That where suddenly you're the the the, de the devil on the shoulder and the the angel on the shoulder are having an interesting discussion about the same topic. There, hmm, intriguing. Yeah, and it's exactly the same thing. And of course that, but if you actually just step a bit back here from uh from what we are talking and look at it objectively um the the uh the power the release that we get from from an orgasm from sex is beautiful and if mm -hmm. you're now using that drug and the drug sort of comes at the same primal level of of an orgasm or of that release um you can see what a power very quickly such a drug can take over you um because it comes mm -hmm. at at two levels way from down from okay hey that feels good to i need to have it on a reptilian brain level doesn't it yes yes and it just like and the thing is is like not that the then like acts of sex were bad in any way but it was like it was leading me to make choices that I don't think that I would have made without the substance. And then you, exactly. then you're just like stuck sorting through all of that too. Like, Oh, what does this mean about me now? Mm. You know, like mm. what does this make me like, mm. and, and just all of that on top of, you know, the shame of just addiction in itself. Absolutely. And let's not be, let's not be, silly here we it's so easy to look down onto addicts and look what they have done here and this is nearly prostitution or so sorry how many people do drink out there and we have we making jokes about it about the beer goggles um that any woman looks good after six six pounds of beer and we laugh about it. ha 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 and we certainly have probably woken up in places where we thought what the hell and who are you um so it is actually so common out there, <laughs> having been there, <laughs> knowing too many people who have been there, okay? So, yeah. no, 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 no. This is, we all do. We all do mm -hmm. things that we very much regret later. And I get yeah. that as part and parcel of our journey. Um, there is, and you, it's interesting that you mentioned the shame and the guilt. Um, was there, when you, when you took the meth, was there, did you feel guilty about it? Did you know that it was wrong? That you was there a part of you that said, "I really don't want to do that, but I I need to." And now that I've taken it, I feel guilty. That developed later on, for sure. I I don't think that was there like instinctually right away. Mm. Um, 
because like I didn't have those like social consequences like it was pretty accepted in in the group that I was in you know with my parents using and everything so I didn't experience that then but it was like it was after I realized like the negative effect that it was having on my life and that this wasn't the life that I wanted to live and then you know after making these attempts at at abstinence and when I would go back that's when that like guilt over the substance began to kick in for me Mm. exactly and that's that's I mean, if you look at how a doctor uh, diagnoses alcoholism, um, it's really um, four questions, the cage questions, we call them. Um, mm-hmm. C for have you ever thought you need to cut down on your drinking or using? Um, have you felt angry when others are commenting about you using? Do you feel guilty about mm-hmm. using? And then for alcohol, it's the eye opener. Do you need any alcohol in the morning to steady your nerves or or calm down the hangover? These are the cage questions for alcohol. But I mean, certainly mm-hmm. the first three are applying to any kind of addiction that is out there. And yeah. as you quite rightly say, they, down the line, I was four out of four. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, initially, uh, you, know, you take it as a young person. Uh, it's part of your life. You're having a good time. And you had good times. I know later down the line, you you uh, it was not all misery. I mean, you uh, tell us a bit about how you actually got into becoming a drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, it's you know the funny thing is it's still even crazy for me to think about me being a drug dealer. But you know, it's like you separate yourself from this lifestyle, but. So I, you know, I had been in this super unhealthy relationship for, for nine years and I was just really dependent on that relationship. Um, and you know, I left this relationship. I was grieving pretty hard. We had tried to have kids. I struggled with infertility. Um, I just really didn't have any social support. Like I'd never developed those things for myself. And so I, after a few year period of, um, abstinence from meth, I went back to using And I was, you know, at the time I was 29 and I I was just too old. I didn't want to do like the couch surfing thing anymore. Like I didn't want to have to depend on others. I didn't want to put myself in that vulnerable situation. And so, you know, I took out the rest of my money, my bank account, which wasn't very much like 300 bucks. And I bought, you know, a quarter ounce and I, you know, quickly turned that into a half ounce and then an ounce. And the next thing you know, I bought a quarter pound and like, then it was just like, and then I was just going, like, I just kept going and I just kept selling drugs. And so within, within a month, you know, I had a, a condo that I was living in. I had bought a new car. I was going to the casino all the time. Like I, and like, not only like the things that you're getting, like I was constantly shopping and like doing all these things, but like the power that comes along with it. I was dating a guy at the time and I just remember him calling it, you know, big fish, little pond, like you should have higher aspirations. But in my mind, I'm like, I feel great. It added like a whole different element to things. And it was, you know, coming from this really like vulnerable background and this really dependent relationship. It was the first time in my life that I felt confident and in control. And that was addictive in itself for me. (laughs) 
I can <laughs> see that. But now if you're actually describing your activities at that time, there was gambling, <laughs> there was shopaholic, there was mm-hmm. you did all the holics. You really got them down. Yes. <laughs> why, why did you miss out on the alcohol? Come on. Was it too below <laughs> you or what? <laughs> oh, I had my times for sure. <laughs> okay. So you were not discriminative. Not discriminating. Uh, definitely not. <laughs> a converser of oh, holics. Yes. <laughs> oh, shit. Gotta try them all out, you know? That's so right. You That's right. <laughs> but of course, there is, it is all of them give you a certain temporary relief or release mm. of tension, a, a temporary tiny high, but that high is never that original high. That high mm. is never. Ah, oh, the first time that you actually uh, really feel whatever feel good there is left in you. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I mean, the, the most truck truck kingpins, and until unless you're in Mexico and become a big cartel, you sort of end up in on the radar of the feds. Uh, certainly in the United <laughs> States, <laughs> could that have been maybe the case with you too? <laughs> yes. It happened very quickly from the time that I relapsed until the time that the fence kicked in my door. Um, it had been a six month period, so I didn't make it very far. Um, I don't know if that means I was really good or really bad at selling drugs. It means one of the two. But either way, um, I, you know, I'll never forget that day um, and going to jail. And when I was arrested, you know, I just thought that meant that I was just going to be in prison for the next 10 years, no mm. questions asked. And um, I ended up getting out on pretrial release. They they let me be out for that year while I was going through that sentencing process. But from the minute that they let me out, like I was like this, I'm, I have to be done. Like I cannot, I cannot just keep doing this. Like I need to just actually figure out what it is that I need to do different and I need to do it. I need to heal. I need to grow because this is not how I want to live my life. Mm. Did you get any help there? I mean, you had surrounded yourself with people who were parting. You surrounded yourself. You chose people that make you think that actually, hey, yeah, that lifestyle that I'm living, that is normal. Uh, That's what we all do. That's why we have got our drinking buddies, etc. The moment you change yourself, 90% of those so-called friends don't want to know you because you're no longer mm-hmm. the fun guy or fun girl um, or the, the, the girl that helps others uh, sustain their addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, that is an, quite an empty space, an empty point in your life how who did you seek help from what was available to you yeah so i mean i wish i would have known all of the resources available then that i do now but at the time like i just i mean i definitely need to give my grandma credit because like throughout everything like she's always been my champion she's always been the one that's Uh, been there that's wanted the best for me and like i can't tell you how many times like I went through my life thinking I didn't have any support, but she was always there. Like, I just didn't know how to like allow myself to access that. So she let me come and stay with her. And, you know, that was just a huge, huge, amazing blessing. So I had a safe place to go, which is more than a lot of people can say. And 
I remember the feeling like at this point, you know, my addiction had become so, so intense. And like, there was so many, so many of my aholic things that you were talking Mm -hmm. about that, like, when I wasn't actively filling that like emptiness inside me, I, I was in so much pain, just I had no idea how to even function. And I just remember I was like, shaking, and I was just like near tears all the time. I was full of anxiety. And I said, like, I just told myself, I just need help. Like, I don't even know where or what that means. And I just like scrolled through the internet browser and found the first like support group that I could find. And it was in a church basement. It wasn't, you know, AA, NA, anything. It was just like a local whatever. And I just went there and I just remember saying like, I don't know what I need, but I need help. And I just started bawling and just, you know, these people that I didn't know were so far removed from my life. They all just like rallied behind me and just loved me. And, and for me, I was like, okay, like I can do this because there are other people who have done this and there are people here to walk this journey with me. Um, So, you know, I did some NA meetings. I did some things like that. I also got really involved in, um, in like meditation and, you know, just some of that mindfulness stuff. I got into doing some more like physical things with my body, doing yoga. I started running. Um, but like the, the biggest piece for me was, um, developing that social group of people who I, I looked at their life and I I said, this is what I want for my life. And those were the people that I started to choose to be around. And, and, you know, they gave me suggestions and they, they helped me. And for the first time in my life, I listened, <laughs> I listened and it changed everything for me. Beautiful. I had exactly the same experience in rehab and once sort of the fog of the first week or two has sort of lifted and you look around, mm-hmm. you suddenly realize I re- had to realize that every single one of the people around me who were helping me were ex-addicts. Mm-hmm. All of them were ex-alcoholics, ex-druggies, etc. And they all had now their shit together from the yoga instructor to the counselors to whatever. And I thought, huh. And the nurses were there. All of them were were addicts in, in previous life. Therefore, you mm-hmm. can't bullshit a bullshitter. And I loved that uh, when I mm-hmm. when I realized that I was surrounded by success stories. Mm-hmm. And that gave me the first time gave me hope a really mm-hmm. hope um and for me it was there was the added thing of being a doctor i know it better i know me i'm a doctor mm-hmm. that bullshit in your mind and actually the, the boss of the rehab took me one saturday out and said hey i want you to meet someone and uh we walked into a cafe uh and there sat a colleague of mine who i knew professionally and who i had actually in high esteem and uh, he's <laughs> the, the boss of the rehab said, yeah, come on, I, you, you two have a chat and I'll pick you up in an hour. And it turns out mm-hmm. that he had been shooting up uh, in the past that he had a problem with that. But I mm-hmm. I knew him now that he was clean and higher, as I said, higher esteem. And for me to see, wow, OK, um, someone that I look up to has been in trouble um, and, and now got his shit together. That was so beautiful and so powerful and gave me that hope that I needed. And for you, that mm-hmm. was there, that was that church group. But more importantly, I would like to to speak out and give a big thank you to your grandmother. Is she still around? 
She is, yes. Oh, <laughs> Granny, oh, however you like to be called, you're my hero because you truly embody the hate the addiction, love the addict. Uh, mm -hmm. And that is so, so, so beautiful. That is sometimes mm -hmm. the only thing that we can do is to show love, even if we hate what a certain person in our life, the, the chaos that they are causing, but still yes. love that person and do not forget to give them a hug. It's just a big hug can sometimes give, can be the difference between life and death. It's as simple yes. as that. Yeah. Oh, I'm so pleased for you that you had that that anchor in that very bizarre storm that you found yourself in called life. She's definitely my rock still oh. to this day. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Does she listen to shows like that? Does she listen to your interviews? She, she does not, but maybe this one I might recommend it to, you know. <laughs> you know it is, I do want her to know like how important she was. Well, exactly, to exactly right. Exactly right. So because sometimes we forget to tell those people who really mean so much to us. And I just thought, you know, it might be a nice thing to do. Oh, I no, that's so beautiful. So the church group helped you, and and initially you were you were still on on pre trial. Um, mm -hmm. When the trial came along, did you have an all paid vacation? Yes, <laughs> yeah, I did. So it was it was such an interesting experience, and when I say interesting, I mean really shitty experience. Um, but it was like great in some ways because I had this year. And in this year, I was so dedicated to like growth and growing and becoming this amazing person. And I was just like mentally preparing myself for going in. So you're doing all this knowing that you are, are on your way to prison. And so in that year, I had met a guy and um, we started dating and we ended up getting married about a week before I had my my sentencing. Oh, wow. And so, um, you know, and then. I had a job that I really liked. I'd started going to grad school. Like I just had really done all these amazing things. And so to have to walk away from all of that and go to prison um, was really, was really devastating. And I, and I, I remember thinking like, it's going to be okay. It's going to go by fast. I'm going to learn a lot here. I'm going to grow here as well. Um, and that lasted about until they dropped me off in the um, dorm that I was staying in. And then I, and then I lost it. <laughs> like, I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is where I'm going to be for the next three years. <laughs> and so like, that was when the panic set in for me, like just even mm -hmm. like, it just became so real. And so, yeah, I ended up doing three years. Um, and I would say for me, every day of that three years was painful. I had a lot of people tell me that I was suffering unnecessarily, but I didn't know how to transcend that at the time. So I suffered through it. <laughs> what do you, what did they mean with you suffered unnecessarily? I think that um, there are a lot of people that maybe are able to accept kind of the situation and like be able to detach and just like be where they're at and like I was never able to do that because yeah. like I I felt like I had this beautiful life waiting for me outside you know I didn't come in in the midst of yeah. hell <laughs> like I came in after after yeah. I'd healed and so it was like 
such a different experience. Cause I think I would have had an easier time if I would have went in like right after everything happened because, and I think I would have also fit in a lot better too, but I definitely (laughs) didn't by the time that I got there. (laughs) Oh, Oh, bloody hell. Were there support services within the, um, within the the hospital? I was about to say within the, uh, the prison service. Um, you know, um, some, it's definitely the need is greater than the actual services provided. Um, and a lot of them are tailored to like meet people as they're getting ready to like head out the door. So like when you're first there and like, you're in that, like, like extreme, like suffering stage, you're kind of just like thrown into the wolves. Um, luckily there was a really great group of women there, um, who were also kind of on that same like self-improvement journey that I was, and they had developed their own support group within the prison. Um, And so they must've just known that I needed them because on my first day there, I was walking down there like, you're new. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, okay, we have this support group. (laughs) Maybe you should try it out. And I did. And like, those were the people that helped me get through this time, you know? And so it was just like, it was just a meant to be type of situation. So. Oh, beautiful! Mm-hmm. This how long were these women in? I can imagine that this is quite a transitional kind of thing because some of them would have been leaving, finally coming, getting ready for for discharge. Um, but how did you guys sustain yourself, and how did that work? So the I would say that the support group lasted about um, a year and a half into my sentence, and then it kind of started to. To fade away because, you know, whether it was somebody getting transferred to another prison, people getting out, most of these people had shorter sentences. So a lot of them were out before I was. Um, But, you know, we had some people come in. So I still developed some relationships. But so I think almost all of them were out by the time that I was. But I mean, last October, we all went to Chicago together and kind of like met up in the central location. We had a really great time. Um, They're going, I think they're going on a cruise this coming October. Um, I will not be going. I am, I'll be seven months pregnant. So <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to set this one out, guys. I think I'll just stay home. But, you know, so they, like everybody stayed in touch and it's just been a really cool thing. Oh, how cool is that? That is beautiful. Yeah. So that was a live straw or a big life ring that was thrown to you by mm-hmm. the universe. Oh, how beautiful yes. is that? Okay. So when you got out, uh, uh, did you hit the ground running? And were you so full of energy that you wanted to? Or was it then such a culture shock to, I mean, everything is now new again and you can't just pick up where you left? It was, yeah, it was like, I had a, well, okay, I'll start with one thing. So I really thought that when I got out, like it was going to make everything okay. Like I was like, this is going to solve all my problems. But it was really difficult readjusting to life. Like even Mm. like, you know, I started off with a part-time job and it seemed overwhelming because you go from having like nothing on your schedule to like, oh my gosh, I got to do all these things. And it's like, how do people have a full-time job? (laughs) And then on top of that, I'd gotten married prior to going to prison. 
but this was my first time living with my husband. And so now we've been married for three years and now we actually have to live together. Uh, 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 and so uh. that comes with its own set of things. Cause usually it's like a transition, you know, like you, maybe mm. they start staying over sometimes or you stay over sometimes. And it's like, kind of like this progressive thing, but like, nope, we're living together and we're married. Here we are. So Excellent. that came with its own set of challenges. And then, um, you know, I didn't think that I could have kids. I had spent about, you know, five years at this point thinking that I, I wasn't able to have children. And um, three months after I got out, of course, I'm pregnant. So, you know, <laughs> we <laughs> moved in together, bought a house, got pregnant and got a dog, like all within like a three month period. So it was like just this really super overwhelming, surreal experience. <laughs> And it took me about a year to even feel like my feet were remotely underneath me. <laughs> it was like thinking back, it's like, how did I even make it through all of that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. These are all the life stressors that you could possibly think about. Uh, you just put them in there. The only thing you didn't do is emigrate into a new country. Apart from that, you ticked it all off. Um, fantastic. <laughs> well, and kudos to you, because at any one time during that time, you could have been tempted to go back. Did you have any relapses? Alcohol, gambling, any of them? No, you know, so um, we did we did go gambling for uh my husband and I our birthday is a day apart and so you know we'd gone gambling one time for our birthdays um at kind of the big like casino resort thing we did like a massage like gambling whatever and like it wasn't like a gambling extravaganza but like mm. even just like throwing that twenty dollars in the machine like that caused me a physical reaction that I did not <laughs> feel good about. Like that is not something that I want to be a part of my life anymore. Good. But, good. Yeah. Good. That's interesting. So, and and I love that that voice that is becoming stronger in recovery when actually you you uh, find yourself no longer driven by impulses and do it and then regret and have shame and guilt, but you actually realize you've got a choice. And mm. you either choose recovery or you choose relapse. Either you're working mm -hmm. either way. It's your choice. Mm -hmm. And that's beautiful. Well, that's the yeah. that's the mindfulness that you want rather than the meth mindfulness that you had previously had. Um, but <laughs> yes. having said that, here you were suddenly thrown this into the deep end. You get tired um, because there's suddenly so much going on in your life. Um, for me, fatigue. Uh, is a big driver to drink because mm. I get a second wind after a few glasses of wine. I uh, bing, okay, it's two o'clock in the morning. Let's clean up the garage, shall we? Um, <laughs> it's that kind of stuff, which I actually like. Um, so for me, how do you deal with, with, with fatigue? How do you deal when you're really down? And do you nowadays have the, the power or the, the insight to say, okay, actually my body's tired, enough is enough? Mm. so for me I feel like so I'm a grad student and I work full-time and I have a toddler and I'm pregnant and I have two great Danes <laughs> so maybe I'm still in a holic of something here there there might be something but for me like I feel like I manage all these things because my life is built around self-care and so Beautiful. it's not 
it's not even like letting myself get to the point where like I'm worn down. Mm. It's like, let's look at my time management on a day-to-day basis. Like if I start to feel like that anxious feeling, like what do I need to change? What do I need to evaluate? It's like a constant, a constant thing for me, you know? And so like routines are of the utmost importance. Like, you know, people are always amazed because I have a, a one and a half year old that just goes to bed, but like also we've, he's just done the same thing every night at the same time for, you know, since he was born. And, and it's the same for me, you know, like I just do the same things at the same time. And like, all along with that, like there's time built in for me to take a nap on the weekends and there's time built in for me to, Mm. you know, stop at a park on the way to work and meditate in my car before I get here. And there's time for me to, you know, spend 20 minutes in the evening talking with my husband. And so it's just, it's just built into my life. So I try my, I look at it as more of like a preventative view. And if I start feeling that build up, like let's take a step back, let's evaluate what's going on here. Beautiful. Beautiful. What you told me there is the key. I mean, you are taking action, massive action in on a continuous basis. And that is beautiful. That is exactly how you, how you win. I, I talk about the principle of the five minute gardener. So if you are, if you're using every day, say every single day, five minutes, never more, never less in your garden. Could you imagine that after a week, you notice some changes after a month, mm. other people notice changes. And after three months, your garden will produce so many veggies. You, you don't know what to do with them. Um, yeah. I think, you know, and if you now do the same five minutes with your child, with your partner, with your with your own, I don't know, with only self. And I love it that you're doing all those things. You call them routine. Other people might call them habits. You have mm-hmm. cemented them down and they are sustaining mm-hmm. your well-being. That's so beautiful because that's the secret, isn't it? Showing yes, up, true. showing up for yourself and uh, putting yourself first mm-hmm. without being selfish. But you need yeah. to to look after yourself. There's a big difference between selfish and self care. Um, mm-hmm. I I I'm still bad at it. I'm still bad at it because <laughs> it is it is. I'm I'm still I'm a people pleaser. I'm still want to be there for everyone. I still want to be. I still seek the external validation. Um, mm. yeah, it is. Uh, uh, so I know my core beliefs are still warped, but hey, <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> but, like even for me, like even when I'm at a place of wellness, like I feel I'm creeping up sometimes, you know, <laughs> like they're always kind of still there. But it is like, how do we manage them? How do we work with these this hand that we were dealt? <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. Uh, I mean, looking at your your history and your family and yourself. I mean, there's probably it's a pretty fair guess that you have got quite a few genes that were actually um, supporting you becoming a, a drug addict mm-hmm. or alcoholic, for that matter. Um, mm-hmm. Are you worried about your children? That your children will have the same genetic predisposition? Oh my gosh, I, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with my husband, with myself, with anybody who will listen about about this and like what do I want to do to manage that and I've thought about it a lot because um, my husband is also you know um, he struggled with alcohol abuse for a long time and anxiety and so we've talked about there's a pretty good chance that they're going to have some of these things that that lead people towards addiction and so we want to start having those conversations early but like 
also like let's help them let's help them manage and learn these coping skills let's help them learn ways to be healthy without substances and just make it a part of their life from a really young age so that when this is presented to them like it doesn't seem like an escape that they need to take Absolutely. I I often joke that if I was in power, I would make it mandatory for every 16 year old to go into rehab for a month, uh, Mm. learn those skills, a life school, so to speak. Um, Mm -hmm. And with that, I don't mean the financial education with that. I don't mean that kind of life. I mean, Mm -hmm. experiencing your emotions and accepting Mm -hmm. them as the wave of neurochemicals that they are, that they Mm -hmm. all serve a purpose. And get to know them. Mm-hmm. How does sadness feel like? No, you don't need a cheesecake to immediately or some some ice cream, five kilogram of it, um, to to numb that, but actually experience it and say, mm-hmm. okay, all right, okay. So that was an anxiety attack. Okay, don't like it, but I'll take it. Oh, oops, it's finished 10 minutes later. Huh, so that's how it works. Those kind mm-hmm. of things I never, never learned until I was in my mid-40s. And that is, if there's one regret in my life, then maybe that's that. That mm-hmm. is that I did not get exposed at a much younger age towards that. But with that, I'm I'm not I'm not now sad about my parents. In the 70s, 80s, there was nothing like that around. It mm-hmm. you know, no, there was maybe I mean any kind of self self-development was deemed to be hippies and and anyhow drugs kind of a thing so no it is i can't blame my society i can't blame my 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 parents for it did for it they did the best that they could with what they knew um mm-hmm. end of the story but you have yeah. got the power nowadays to change that Mm-hmm. You have got the insight now. So therefore, will your children have a higher likelihood just genetically to be pre- uh, to to pos- potentially develop addictive behavior? Hell yes. Um, mm-hmm. Does that mean that they will? Hell no. <laughs> because mm-hmm. I think you're going to be such a different role model. See, mm-hmm. for me, my children, they have seen me at my worst and they have seen me mm-hmm. at my best. So they've seen both sides. Your children, they will not see you at your worst unless you choose to show them some pictures, unless you choose to talk openly (laughs) about it. (laughs) Maybe someday. That's right. Exactly. Who knows? Who knows? (laughs) It's a bit young now. (laughs) But here you are, this, this laughter, there was probably very little laughter in your parents' family. Uh, uh, so, mm-hmm. Sorry, in your family, when when you were with your parents, unless it was mm-hmm. a crazy drug-induced laughter. But that laughter, mm-hmm. if you can have that laughter within your family now, that will give them a grounding that maybe you mm-hmm. never had. So I strongly, strongly believe that, that uh, we have got the right and the privilege to make choices every single second. And by looking after us, by showing the self-care and the self-love, that mm-hmm. we that allows us then to live in, in a life that is authentic and yeah. transparent with integrity with humility with all the emotions the gamut that there is and by modeling that to our children i think we make them so much stronger despite yes. their genes that we have handed down to them yeah yeah very mm-hmm. very very true mm-hmm. you know and i've learned so much like like being an addict 
for me is a blessing because I, if I hadn't, I might not have received the services that mm. I did to learn the things that I have and to learn the coping skills. But like, since then, like I've dedicated my life to helping others and, you know, education and learning. And so like, those are all things that I carry into this relationship too, you know? And like, I love, I love the concept of like the epigenetics thing, you know, like not all of those flips get switched on, you know, we have some control over that environment and everything that goes into that. Mm, So true. Absolutely true. And now, beautiful. Tell us a bit more. I mean, you have turned from that victim to a survivor, and now you're clearly a thriver. What are you doing nowadays? What are what is what is turning you on? In in what makes your your eyes uh, do your pupils dilate? Say yes, <laughs> let's do that. <laughs> yeah. So I um. My healing journey has been really cool too. Like, so before I had my, before I started selling drugs and I had that like period of doing really well, I got my bachelor's degree in human services with a minor in addiction studies. And I began doing some addictions counseling work. Um, and that was great. And so, you know, I went to prison and as I'm going through prison, I'm like, is this something I'm even going to ever be able to do again? Like, is anybody even going to want to ever hire me again? Because I really messed up big time. Um but I got out, you know, and I, and after a couple of years and I was like starting to feel like I was in a, in a good place and I was, I'd done the work I needed to do. Um, it was so important for me to get back into a position where I could help other people because like, that is, that's what drives me. That's what drives me. And so I, I was, I'd been looking for jobs. I'd had a lot of doors closed in my face, you know, the minute that they found out that I had this felony and, and I was really getting discouraged. And I was like, well, I guess I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing for now. And you know, I don't know, maybe go back to school, maybe whatever. Um, and then I ran across this posting for a place called Face It Together for a peer recovery coach. And I I looked at this posting and like, you know, the pay was pretty good. <laughs> the organization like seemed too good to be true. Just like the positive view on addiction that they had and like the support and like really just like empowering people. And so I was like, I'm going to apply, but I don't even think this job is real. <laughs> I feel like this is a scam somehow. And so I applied and I just remember doing the interview and it was, I talked about my meth addiction and I talked about growing up and I talked about going to prison. And afterwards they said, you know, gosh, what great experience you have. Like, you're going to be able to help a lot of people. And I'm like, if I don't get this job, I don't know how I'm ever going to move on with my life. Yeah. And so I got the job. Um, and I started off at Face It Together as a coach. And so peer recovery coaching is really like, is a trained professional who, but somebody who's been there, uh-huh. somebody who can help you like navigate through somebody who can share their story and like, let you know how messed up they were. And you can see how okay they are now and ex- share that, share that experience yeah. and hope with them. Um, so I started off doing exclusively the exclusively the coaching um and then I start I transitioned into the coaching supervisor role so I still do um like 50% coaching and I do a lot of training of the other coaches helping them like develop their skills um and so and I love doing that um but I'm also going to grad school I'm going to grad school for clinical mental health counseling so um you know part of that driver for me was working with people with addiction and going through my own life like that intersection between like trauma and addiction, Mm. you know, it is, they're, they're so intertwined. 
you know, if you didn't have addiction before you, uh, or if you didn't have trauma before you went into your addiction, you're going to by <laughs> the time that you're gone. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> oh, that's so, true. And, and, you know, and then a lot of times it is like trauma that pushes people into addiction and not, not always, you know, but so I just feel like there, I was running into people that struggled with so much trauma and I, I felt like my hands were tied and I wanted mm. to be able to like help them on a deeper level. So that is why I decided to go back to school is like, I just wanted to gain those tools so I could just really like be more effective with the people that I'm working with. Oh God, how beautiful is that? But right now, mommy brain will start setting in, and I think you need to probably put your put your your your, your education temporary on hold. Is my educator guess? Um, <laughs> yes. But it is what it is. I mean, these and and what you're describing to me is a beautiful challenge now. Having the your child being in the middle of your studies, um, it is, uh, and that's what life is all about. There is continuously, uh, there are continuously challenging moments. There's continuously new trauma. Um, mm. Maybe nowadays we have get the skills to um, look at those things that happen around us and to us and no longer let them be traumas themselves, but just mm. something that happens. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's so many, so many new insights that we develop once we go onto this journey of self-love and self-care, you will see, you will never look at the world in the same way again. And that's actually really, really beautiful. Um, That is, oh, wow. So I'm, I'm so pleased for you. I'm so your, your transformation is such a beautiful transformation. Um, And it just shows that whatever life throws you as negative things, the past does not mean to, uh, does not equal the future whatever has mm-hmm. happened to you in the past or whatever you've done in the past well that was in the past and nowadays mm-hmm. you are you are helping others and you're living a life to the fullest and you that the best thing is you're still growing so mm-hmm. have you figured out who you want to be when you grow up <laughs> no i mean i feel like i feel like if you would have asked me 10 years ago like you know i thought for sure i'd be grown up when i was 36 but you know as it turns out <laughs> i don't even know if i'm ever gonna grow up <laughs> to be really honest See, i'm 56 i don't know how to behave i was never 56 before so see i'm I still and in all fairness age is is, is really just a stupid number it is i have mm. There are days when I feel 21 deep inside, and there are days when I feel my age, 56. But all in all, I am hungry for life. I am, I, I want to live. And mm-hmm. that is, is a beautiful thing for me to realize. The moment I just said that, I had to reflect back or my mind flipped back to a time when I did not want to live when there was so much darkness around me that I thought it's actually, you know, maybe not living is not such a bad thing. Um, And now to hear the conviction in my own voice is actually a very humbling thing. Um, But that comes from the fact that that I've taken action and you have taken action. We continuously take action to work on our recovery, to work on our life, and we make our life worthwhile living. And therefore, the more we do that, the less we want to escape our reality. And I think that is that is really the power of the addict. That is where I believe I've got a superpower. 
which is my addiction. Mm -hmm. And you said it the same way. It's beautiful that we both get the same realization. Yes. Katie, you're an amazing woman. Uh, I'm so pleased for you. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I've got so much out of this interview. I'm incredibly grateful to you. Thank you so much for coming as a guest on my show. This was a mind-blowing moment, or morning, shall I say. Um, when If people want to know more about you and maybe get in touch with you, where can they find you? So the best place to get in touch with me is through Face It Together. Um, and so our website is wefaceittogether.org. Um, that would have, you know, our general line and they could just drop a note saying that they would like to get in touch with me. And that is yeah. the easiest way to put myself out there. Um, and I'm I'm happy to be in touch with anybody, whether it is just to share my story, whether it's for advice, support, whatever, you know, that that's what I do. That's what I love to do. So. Fantastic. And guys, look down there into the description of the YouTube video and of the podcast, because everything is down there. Make it easy for you. And whilst you're down there, press the like and subscribe button, because with that, you get informed about all the beautiful other guests that I bring onto my show. Uh, people like Katie, who have turned their life around, um, who are becoming new, new humans, better humans. And regardless, or maybe even because of the the shit that they went through, and it only proves that you know there's so many of us who have been successful in turning our lives around. There is not just a fair chance; there's a very high chance that if you surround yourself with the with your right tribe, with people, uh, your power team where you're the dumbest person in the team and people help you to grow that you will also maybe soon end up in a similar situation like Katie and me. Hey, mm -hmm. so whatever your darkness out there is, guys, do not give up. Do not lose hope. Hopefully, I mean, the sheer fact that you listened an hour here to Katie and me means that you have taken action. You are you have already graduated into the survivor because you have taken action and you're doing something to actually to 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 grow, to get out of whatever misery you're stuck in. For that, I congratulate you. And now the question is, okay, what next little step can you take? It's your right. It's your choice. It's your privilege to make new choices. You can choose to go down a different route. So come along onto the right, guys. Uh, Katie and me are on this path. We we enjoy ourselves. We have a damn good time mm -hmm. here. So come along and yeah, check Katie out of the links down there. Otherwise, uh, if you want to know more about me, mystepstosobriety.com. My website gives you a lot of info about all the projects that I'm involved in, the books that I've got. Um, guys, there is no stopping you if you start to take action. Cool. Katie, I sent you a huge hug. And thank you so much for being such an inspiration and, and such a wonderful person. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And thanks for everything that you do. This is such a beautiful project that you're working on. Cool. And you out there, guys, look after yourself. Live with passion. Bye. Dream,